Choose Linux, episode 29, for February 20th, 2020. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Joe. I'm Drew. And I'm Mel. And here we are for episode 29. And let's start with Distro Hoppers, Linux console. How did we get on with this? I hope you got on rather better than I did. I think I maybe was a little more successful, but I wasn't really all that impressed, to be honest. I don't even know where to start here, guys. Um, Sit back, grab a drink, and get ready for the story. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose we should start with your uh, adventure just getting this thing to boot, Elle. Oh my god, I think you guys are probably so tired of it because it just became screenshot after screenshot after, no, I tried that. No, I tried that. No, it's not that. It took a week and a half for me to actually be able to get it installed on the computer. Can I give a very public thank you to one of our listeners, Nunix, for actually bringing other computers to the house so we can try to figure out what was going on? You know what? I still can't tell you what actually was wrong. We ended up resetting the BIOS and going through and just individually changing every little aspect of the boot up process until we got it to boot. And now I'm like, I'm not going to touch it. (laughs) Don't look at it. Just put it over there. Presumably you had to put it into legacy mode and turn any secure boot off and all that kind of stuff. I can tell you that we had legacy mode on the whole time. And if you don't have that on, it's it's not even going to boot. It's not going to read the disk. But what would happen is I would get the pop-up menu saying like, you know, hey, you've got it. You know, it's a live USB. Please choose if you want to boot, you know, USB, if you want to boot from disk, are you looking to repair? And no matter what I chose, it would go, you know, nine, eight, seven, all the way down to one. And then it would just hang. So I walked off an hour later. It's still just hanging. Nothing would happen. (laughs) I didn't actually have any problems like that. I think because of the way I've configured this laptop to just be as legacy as possible and no secure boot and just boot whatever you throw at it, I got that countdown and then it just booted up straight away. I can completely own up to it being user error. Like, I I will own that. But what do you do when you run into something? You go to Google. You know what you're going to get if you type in Linux console in your error? It's not going to be about the distro. (laughs) That's quite a generic Linuxy word, isn't it? Console. I would imagine that somewhere there are docs, but I couldn't find them through their website and I couldn't find them through Google. So if they're out there, I will own up that I never found them. Didn't you find the docs, Drew? I found some docs. (laughs) To call them the docs, I think, would be giving them a little too much credit. It's uh, sparse documentation would be the way I would put it. Usually with most of these distros, when we do a hop, there is a page that says something to the degree of, this is how you install X distro. And so normally I have to own it. I will do it without ever looking at that page. But then if I run into issues, I go through the page and figure out maybe if there was a step I missed, something unique. I I really think that this distribution could benefit from a page like that. Like these are the settings that you need to be able to get it to run on your laptop. Maybe some people who are advanced, that would just be common sense to them. But not everyone who's going to try these distros, especially when they say they're targeted to kids, is going to be an advanced user. Yeah, that's a good point, because on DistroWatch, it says its primary characteristics are easy installation, extensive choice of software in the form of modules, and excellent hardware detection. Lies, Joe, lies. (laughs) Yeah, that's not what I experienced at all, really. The installation was relatively straightforward. Although I did hit a snag where it said, oh, no, you didn't label the partition Linux console, so it automatically opened up Gparted. 
And then I was able to format the partition that I wanted it to go on, label it as Linux console. And then it just installed in about 30 seconds, maybe less than that. Now, I'm actually going to take a little bit of an issue here. Yes, the installer is very simple. But at the very beginning, it's telling you that it's grabbing all of SDA. And it has very specific requirements for how you format this thing. My question is, why is it forcing us to go into Gparted and do all of this manually? If it has to be the specific way and it's grabbing a whole disk, why isn't it just a script? That's a bit strange because I don't remember it saying anything about using the whole disk. I was able to just point it at a specific partition. I believe it was worded a little vaguely. My takeaway was we're using SDA as in the whole disk, not a partition on SDA. Fortunately, in both cases, I was using a computer where I could blow away a whole disk, so I didn't have to worry about it too much. Yeah, I'm sorry, Joe. I'm going to have to go on Drew with this one because that's exactly what I ran into. All right. Weird, because it didn't blow away my Ubuntu partition because I have this test laptop where... If that Ubuntu partition goes away, it's not the end of the world, but I'd prefer to leave it around. And it's still there now, dual booting. So I don't know, maybe I went into an advanced menu or something. I don't remember. Either way, once you get the installation complete, it's done. There's no configuration or anything or even user creation that you have to do before rebooting into the uh, final system. Yeah, you just boot into it, set your root password and... Then you're faced with a Mate desktop running as root. Hold on, Joe. Didn't we miss a step somewhere in there? The only password we set was the root password? Yeah, so you have to manually add your user. And so I thought, okay, open a terminal. I tried add user, not found. And then I thought, right, I need to go and do something else now and just complain to you two. And then LU told me that there's a very simple way to do it with the GUI. I have to be honest, I didn't even try on the command line. I just got to clicking buttons. And yeah, I, I stumbled across that as I was trying to change the, the way that the OS was looking. Just kind of see what I could configure. Yeah, and I went straight to the CLI. And instead of doing add user, I did user add, which is similar to add user, but it's more geared towards like one-liner operation rather than you know prompting you for the various things. You just type them in with flags. And that worked fine. I've never heard of that. I've always done it with add user. If you know what you're trying to do and know the flags for it, it's very quick and simple. But add user is nice in that it prompts you and you don't have to remember all the flags or run a dash H to get them each time. So if add user's there, I tend to prefer it. But user add isn't bad in a pinch. What's the flag for the room number? Because that's really important when you add a user. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. So once we'd created our users and logged in, what then? Well, I usually look to update the system, but there seemed to be no way to do that through the GUI. I couldn't get it to work through the command line either. I actually did get it to reach out and look at the repos, but there were no updates available. So it seemed like we were already on the newest of everything as of the time that that ISO was printed. I don't know if that's the case, Drew, because they had a few examples on their website to doing things like installing Git or other applications, and the repos were empty for those, too. I actually got Git to install. In fact, I got a few packages to install. But one interesting thing is when I did list all the packages in the repo, there were only 11. So I don't know if they were just still fleshing out the repos for this particular release or if they just have 11 packages. I, I'm just not sure. 
it was confusing to say the least. Well, I just checked before we started recording, and this is around about a week before we release the episode, so it may change over that week, but it was the same. I didn't count the exact number, but 11 sounds about right to me. Yeah, and I was taking a look at some of the things that were prepackaged in the distro, and there were some interesting choices, like Chromium is a default browser, but unsandboxed, and Wine is installed by default, QJack control, just some things that you don't normally see for default applications. And I found that interesting, not necessarily bad, but it definitely feels like this is a distro that is designed for one person. It also had an option in the menu to download Chrome, but then it said you needed to be root to do it. So I should, in retrospect, have logged out and logged back in as root, but I didn't think of that at the time, and now I feel stupid. Well, you know, it also included Firefox, because I had to be honest, I didn't even look at Chrome. Y'all know that. And when I clicked on it, you know, you double-click, you expect Firefox to show up, and what I get is basically a little downloading box. And I'm like, why do you have the icon if you don't even have the application on here? Well, it says latest Firefox, and so it obviously goes out and gets the latest Firefox. So if Firefox were to have an update halfway through, you know, my usage of it, would it go and pull down the latest every single time? Is it checking every single time I launch it? That's a good question. With your comment about having to go back and log in as root to do most installs, first of all, that was driving me crazy. And I would forget kind of who I'm logged in as as I'm doing things. And I would close my lid and walk off and come back and open my lid and the box never locked. So I had just left a laptop sitting there, logged in as a root user. Like, I don't even want to touch the computer anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So all this really leads me to wonder, who is this made for? Like, who is the target audience for Linux console? I have an answer for that, Drew. It was 100% made for kids because that's the only target audience that I could think could have as much fun as I saw my niece and nephew have with it. So the box that Nunix gave me has a touchscreen. And this thing is chock full of games from the install. So I handed it over to them and they were able to play the tuck sledding and this really fun kind of paint game and just had a blast with it. So as long as they never needed updates, we'd be fine. Okay, so maybe the distribution is named Linux console because it's meant to be sort of like a Linux gaming console. Oh, that's interesting. I don't think that it explicitly says that on the website, but that's kind of what it seems like, right? With preloaded games, and that's the only thing that really seems to work the way that we expect them to. I wonder if we've been using this thing wrong. Maybe we have been using it wrong, but... If you're going to have a Linux system, even if it's aimed at kids and gaming or whatever, it needs to get some fundamentals right. You need to be able to install certain packages. You need to be able to update it. I'm not kind of buying this idea of it's like a console and therefore you never update it because that's the whole thing with Xbox and PlayStation. You turn them on and the first thing they do is update usually. And I wouldn't even say four kids. I mean, the kids that I gave it to that had a blast with it were five. I can tell you right now, I would feel pretty confident saying my eight-year-old probably has outgrown this. With maybe a month's worth of Linux experience, she would already be wanting to do things this distro just couldn't handle, especially since I'm not giving her root on the box. If the main goal is to play games, there's no reason for it to be logging in as root at first. It really should be having some kind of user creation or at the very least should have some kind of box popping up on first login 
instructing people to do things like maybe create a user or, hey, this is what this distro is for, if it's for such a specific purpose. I think their heart's in the right place, but I think it needs a lot more polish to really get there. Well, at this point, I would normally ask you if it's going to hang around on your machines, but I think it's quite clear that it's not going to. Can I admit right now that it isn't there anymore already? (laughs) (laughs) I always leave it on until we at least record. That's my rule. No. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. And so normally we would go for another one on DistroWatch using the random distribution button. But I wanted to talk to you guys about this first. Is it time for us to stop looking at these random small distros? I do wonder if there's any chance of these smaller distros ever making it big, for want of a better word. I mean, the good thing about open source is that anyone can make their own distribution, either based on another one or completely from scratch. And if they use it just on their own or just with a few friends or with a small community, that's fine. And everyone has the right to do that. But is there much point in us looking at these distros that are very unlikely to be used by more than maybe a few thousand people at most. I agree in a lot of ways that there's not a whole lot of reason to talk about these in terms of desktop Linux. However, there is something to be said for when a distribution is truly doing something novel and should maybe be looked at by the larger community just in terms of they're doing something different that is very worthwhile. I think a lot of what should be discussed with Linux has really been consolidated down into the major projects now, and they're driving most of the innovation these days. Sure, there's still, you know, the garage workers who are coming up with cool experiments, but a lot of times they're running on top of Ubuntu or Fedora or something like that. And yeah, maybe the age of the boutique distro is coming to an end. I don't know if I'm going to agree with that. It just depends how far down you want to go with it, because I think that the boutique distros are a wonderful sign of creativity and the adventurous side of open source technology and Linux. And if we don't have these small, you know, just boutique distros, as you guys are calling them, I know that some people believe we don't need it. But there's just like small, um, you know, you talked about distributions that were built on Ubuntu. And one that I ran into that I just thought was hilarious was Ubuntu Christian. And it's built on top of Ubuntu, obviously, but it has really strict parental controls. It has Bible study apps already on it. It has just a a custom theme that is made for somebody who might not try Linux otherwise. But can you really call something like Ubuntu Christian Edition a boutique distro? It is a smaller distro, but it is based on Ubuntu. So you know that it's going to have all of the support and all of the packages and all of the good stuff about Ubuntu. And it's just a customized version of Ubuntu, let's say. And that, for me, is different from something that's trying to be independent. Well, let's let's take a pause here then and reset the scene. Could you please define for me and everybody else what you're calling a boutique distro? Well, that's a very good question. And you might well have caught me out here because maybe something based on Debian or Ubuntu can still be called a boutique distro. Well, let me give you an example to work with because this was this was the heartbreaking one for me. You guys know that I loved Corora. 
That that was my operating system. I have broken everything and I never broke Corora, which was based on Fedora, obviously by the name. But when the developer hit developer fatigue, the OS as a whole went away. And would that be considered a boutique distro since it was pulling from Fedora? I think it was a boutique distro, yeah. So maybe my point is completely invalid. Stop uh, proving me wrong all the time, Al. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what, Al? That is a very good point. And when you look at things like, you know, even Magia or Manjaro Linux, where they build on distributions that aren't Ubuntu, but they're using their own package repositories and they're doing things in their own way and they have their own histories. Are they considered boutique? I mean, granted, these are two fairly large, quote unquote, boutique distros, but they're not what people think of when they think of the major Linux distributions. When we think of those, we think of, you know, Debian, Ubuntu, which Ubuntu is, of course, uh, downstream from Debian and Red Hat and Fedora. Those are kind of the biggest ones. You know, some might say Arch or, you know, other ones that have a pretty decent market share within the Linux community. Don't forget OpenSUSE. Yeah, absolutely. And including OpenSUSE and all of the others that are bigger and have large user bases and are doing important work, but they're not the big fish. Earlier, I talked about how are we going to get the next big fish? How are we going to get the next big distro? And one that I didn't like at first, but I'm watching it grow and grow and grow in my circles is Kali Linux. I mean, you're looking at it. And at first I was like, everything you can do with Kali, you could do on the command line by yourself. And the more that I'm watching people do it, it, it saves time. Linux admins, Linux users, we're lazy. And so if you give me a tool where I can just go click a bunch of things and have it magically done, I'm going to do it. So I just keep watching more and more people turn to Kali as their distro of choice, even when it comes to bare metal. Do you think that Mr. Robot has significantly increased the user base of that? I mean, I'm not even joking, seriously. Anything that can get the name out there, I think really influences people to try it. But that's the difference. You know, how many distros have I tried that I can't even remember their names? These people are trying Kali and they're sticking with it. Well, and I think there's something to be said that there are actual security classes that teach Kali. You can get certified in Kali. Absolutely, you can. At a certain point, I have to ask, is Kali a Linux distribution or is it a tool that happens to run Linux? Yes, both. Why not both? It, it gets back to the argument, is Linux a kernel or is Linux an OS? Like, we've moved beyond that. But then that begs the question, what about distributions like elementary? They have a lot of weight behind them. And they make waves in the overall community. They're technically based on Ubuntu, but they're doing things very differently. Like, you couldn't just load up a PPA of elementary and really have it be the same thing. So where do they fit in? I would call Elementary a large boutique distro. <laughs> I think you're just making these up, Joe. <laughs> All words are made up, Al. That's how language works. But then how do I get in trouble on here? <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, I, I think that Elementary started as a small boutique distro. And because they are very good at promoting it and because it is a good distro, they've grown and grown and grown to the point where they're not a big distro, they're also not a small distro. So 
I, I don't know. I think that this boutique label may be um, totally arbitrary. Well, and we also have to ask ourselves, what is the measure of success? Is it number of users? Is that the only measure of success? Or, as is the case with elementary, is mindshare a measure of success? Because even if people aren't necessarily using elementary in mass, they are commanding a pretty substantial amount of mindshare just in saying, things need to be better, and here's how we're doing it. You can do it too. I have a question on that end that maybe can help me understand everything a little bit. So you guys know I've been doing server Linux for a while, but it really wasn't to what, a year ago that I started doing desktop Linux. And my world has always been these hundreds of distributions to get to pick from. What was it like when you guys first started? Is, is this the disconnect when there was only a few Linux distributions and those were the big dogs? Well, Drew, you go back further than I do. But uh, when I started um, like 12, 13 years ago, something like that, there were still a lot of distros, a lot of smaller distros. Um, I, I don't think it was hugely different because distros come and go, right? And I think the, the numbers weren't massively different. Yes and no. When I was first starting out, we didn't have the massive amount of distros that we have now. There wasn't a distro for everything. Slackware was probably one of the biggest. Ubuntu didn't exist yet. I started out with Mandrake Linux, and the main way to get Linux was either through a print-to-CD service or from the latest issue of a Linux magazine. And that's how I did it. I would get the latest edition of Mandrake Linux or whatever else I was trying out that month from whatever magazine I picked up at Barnes & Noble. Now, keep in mind that this was the pre-cable modem days and my paltry 56K connection, actually, this may have even been 14.4, just couldn't really cope with downloading a whole Linux distribution and then, you know, me burning it onto a disk. Yeah, there's disk space to consider. There's the amount of time that I'd have to spend with my modem connected where they're charging me by the minute. So we were buying physical disks and it was whatever you could get at the time through print media. So I have to admit, I think my question, I intended it to be a loaded question because that's the stories I've always heard. So I didn't think there was going to be that many distributions if people were having to go so out of their way to be able to get their hands on them. It's not like today where we just go and, you know, spin a random button and go, OK, let me click the link and download it. Yeah, I think it must have changed around the time that broadband Internet became a thing when people moved away from 56K. But that, I think, was slightly before my time. So... When I first got into it, there were a lot of distros, but Drew, as I said, you've been around for a lot longer in the Linux space, so you must have seen that change happen. I did, and the one that really sticks out to me is Ubuntu, because you have something that was based on Debian, but it made Linux easy, or at least easier, and it really changed the game. So this is a little bit of, you know, Linux history, but when Ubuntu hit the scene, it was huge. And nothing has really been the same since. Not only was it in the era where you could just download Linux straight off the internet without any kind of concerns or having to, you know, go to your school and borrow their T1 line just so that you could download it over hours and hours and hours without incurring massive internet fees. 
it was just easier. And nowadays, seeing how many Ubuntu-based distributions there are out there, it makes perfect sense to me that it is the base because it is the thing that changed the face of what Linux is today. Do you think it was just a case of good timing then for Ubuntu as to why it took off? Because it came around at a time when really decent home internet became a thing. I don't know if it was necessarily that Ubuntu came about at the right time where broadband was really starting to become mainstream. I honestly think it's a combination of that and the fact that the architects of the original Ubuntu releases were really good at making something that got people excited to use their computer again, even more so than just the people who like to tinker with technology in their garages. They were pulling in people who were maybe not so into Windows or Mac and just kind of wanted something simple and different. Well, I think you're talking about me there. They pulled me in because I had tried a couple of distros first and just not got on with them at all. But then there was this really easy to use live system that I could just run off the CD and didn't have to install. But then I did install it and it was super easy and just worked perfectly. Yeah, it changed the game. Yeah, so no wonder so many distros are based on it, including the one that you're using now, Pop! OS. I love Pop! OS. I need to get some kind of endorsement deal with them. (laughs) (laughs) Get yourself a free System76 computer, maybe. Man, I'll take a t-shirt right now. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Carl, you hearing this? I know you're listening. Yeah, maybe Emma could send you one. (laughs) I mean, if we're going to pull favors, then yeah, that Thelia sounds really nice. (laughs) Stop begging and borrowing hardware. (laughs) So back to your original, original idea and original question. I enjoy the boutique distros. Like, you know what? Sometimes distro hopping just sucks. Like, I'm going to say it because it gets to the point where I don't know if it's the distro that's broken. I don't know if it's my brain that's broken. So these little boutique distros, like, don't laugh at me, guys, but like Hannah Montana Linux or Justin Bieber Linux that were never meant to be taken seriously, they're like dessert. They're a fun thing to play with that, cool, it's broken. You know what? It's still funny and it's still something to talk about. Maybe it was their original intent, and maybe that's a little niche, but for those of us that do this day in and day out, it's a welcome break. Yeah, and if nothing else, it's showing you that somebody is having fun doing something irreverent and not really meant to be taken seriously. And it's not just fun distros like Hannah Montana that you guys can try out, but there are distros that started out as boutique distros that that had a real purpose behind them. And I know that you guys can probably speak to this more, but it's changed. But scientific Linux being created and open sourced and used by CERN, I think, is a clear example of that. Oh, absolutely. Scientific Linux served a really, really great service to the Linux community. And even though it's ended, I think their mission was successful because now what they had created is available to use in lots of other distros. It did exactly what it set out to do. And it's no longer needed because larger projects can benefit from its successes. I've done a fair bit of this distro hopping throughout my time using Linux. And Occasionally, I'll come across a distro that generally isn't going to be sticking around, but there'll be one or two aspects of it that I really like. 
and they will stick around. There might be a different menu that it uses, or there might be a certain pre-installed application that I'd never heard of before. So I think there is some value to these smaller distros, and maybe the bigger distros could check them out and learn something from them. And sometimes learning what people are doing wrong is as valuable as what they're doing right. So I return to my original question then, are we going to stop hitting the random distribution button and go a different route for distro hoppers? Could I maybe offer up a challenge of what I've been playing with? Yeah, go on then. So like I said, I left this hop a little bit early because I wanted a stable environment. And so I decided to give Solus a try. And honestly, I'm really enjoying this journey. It's been a long time since I've used Solus. And I've been meaning to check it out again because they had a release not too long ago. So, yeah, that sounds good to me. Yeah, I think you're on the right track there, Elle. I think we should be looking at distributions that really have something that we want to talk about more so than a random button. Because I think we get more knowledge out of the things that really pique our interest than we do from something that we've never even necessarily heard of. So yeah, I'm I'm all in for Solus. All right, well, this is new media. We make the rules. Let's change how it is for now. And we can always go back to the random distribution button if we want to. So yeah, in a couple of episodes, let's uh, have a look at Solus. But time gets the better of us, so we'd better get out of here. You can go to choose slash subscribe for all the ways to get future episodes, including the one that we'll do about Solus. And you can go to choose slash contact if you want to get in touch with us. And as always, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at L underscore O underscore punk at LO punk. I'm at Drew of Doom. And I'm at Joe Rissington. We'll be back in two weeks. Bye.